With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm getting in the elevator, and these two high school white boys tried to get on with me. And I just dove off. I said, y'all ain't killing me. I am scared of young white boys. If you white and under 21, I am running for the hill. What the hell is wrong with these white kids shooting up the school? It's that trench coat mafia. Five o'clock, if you're expecting news to at five, we are continuing our coverage of this tragedy that began at 10.13 this morning. Here's a recap. Deadly shooting in Green Hills this morning. Covenant Presbyterian School on Burton Hills Boulevard. Seven people we now know were killed in this shooting. Three of those children, all age nine. Three adults, 261, 160. And the shooter, 28-year-old Audrey Elizabeth Hale. She has now was taken down by Metro Police officers. An investigation is ongoing in the Belmont area of her father's home to find out any information that officers can find out about a possible motive, about why she chose to take this action today. A 28-year-old Andre Hale is the suspected shooter. Investigators believe they live at Brightwood Avenue in the Belmont Hillsboro neighborhood. Investigators uh, searched a home there. They found detailed maps drawn of the school, including things like surveillance and entry points. Uh, they also found a manifesto they're going over that marks today's date down. Now, Hale was a former student at the Coven Covenant School, rather. Uh, they do identify as transgender. Uh, they are not sure exactly if or how that ties in. MMPD says they had two assault rifles and a handgun. They believe they brought two of those three legally. I hope my parents can forgive me for what I do. It's either this or a sad life and me becoming a serial killer. They are the words of a disturbed individual. Investigators say the alleged Oxford school shooter, Ethan Crumley, wrote those words in his journal. This page of the journal obtained by Fox 2 shows a thought out, detailed plan. A list of what he needed to carry out the plan and the things the suspect intended to do shoot a girl in the head. I will tell some close friends to not come to school the day of the shooting. So this is clearly a premeditated, highly organized plan. These teens are charged with conspiracy to commit a mass Columbine-style school shooting. Connor Pruitt, 13, and his 14-year-old buddy, Philip Bird, were allegedly planning to target their middle school in Lehigh Acres, Florida. The arrest happened after an eighth grade teacher got a tip from a student at the school that one of the boys had a gun in his backpack. When the backpack was opened, no gun was found, but police say there was a map with markings allegedly showing the exact location of all of the surveillance cameras in the school. The teens are said to have been extensively studying the 1999 Columbine massacre. What do you say about what you think their intent was. I am absolutely convinced that we prevented a mass shooting. The two suspects have been surfing online 
trying to buy guns on the black market. They researched thoroughly Columbine. They were inspired by Columbine. I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health, but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism and white supremacy. The gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious. The answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. The Catherine Massey Book Club brought us here today. Mm. This is the cows, but the Catherine Massey Book Club brought us here today. I think sometime over the past year since the book club was rebranded, the Catherine Massey Book Club, someone asked, who is Catherine Massey? I gasped. We will get this on the record to start the program because it hits so many of the points that we will discuss. This was written in the Buffalo News, May 2021. So two years from where we are right now, two years previously. The recent news story about Erie County legislator April Baskin's cousin who was fatally gunned down near her district office is another gut-wrenching account of the escalating gun violence in Buffalo and many major U.S. cities. There needs to be extensive federal action legislation to address all aspects of the issue. Current pursued remedies mainly inspired by mass killings, namely universal background checks and banning assault weapons essentially exclude the sources of our city's gun problems. Illegal handguns via out-of-state gun trafficking are the primary culprits. Several years ago, a former New York State Attorney General recommended that a comprehensive federal gun trafficking law should be enacted also, he suggested a state-level gun kingpin bill to ramp up sentences for sellers of large numbers of illegal guns. Two federal laws of longevity, which are continued roadblocks to law enforcement efforts to prevent and solve gun violence crimes, are the Tearheart Amendment, parental by the parented by the National Rifle Association, NRA, and the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act. The intention for both is to bar lawsuits against firearms sellers and manufacturers for crimes committed with their products. Incredulously, the amendment requires the FBI to destroy all approved gun purchaser records within 24 hours. At least Congress should pass legislation to eliminate the preceding restriction, the political will to repeal the detrimental Tearheart Amendment seems absent. Evidence Senate Bill S-3299, after being read twice, was sent, banished to the Committee on the Judiciary. 
Cat Massey Buffalo May 2021 she along with nine other black people would be killed a year later white gunman Peyton Gendron now convicted murderer still waiting sentence in the federal trial but that is the rebranding now the Catherine Massey book club the cow Sunday May 28 2023 so I have been told so-called holiday weekend so we got here today in the book club we are reading Columbine by Dave Cullen I said I was embarrassed that I was a student when all that happened I never studied it seriously I think my sole source of information was bowling for Columbine I said that is disgraceful we're reading Dave Cullen's book started trying to do research and find other pieces of research and information about it there's so much uh, about Columbine and even just the audio that we started with today Audrey Hale that was in Nashville Tennessee this year that also is a big part of why we're reading this current book because at that time the Catherine Massey book club we were reading about Brazil they had a school attack in Brazil on the same day as Audrey Hale's attack in Nashville Tennessee that was one that we heard in the audio uh, segment elementary school six victims uh, 2023 we heard in the audio segment uh, about Ethan Crumley, Michigan, Northwest region. I think that'd be classified. Uh, that was 2021. Four people were killed, seven injured. That one I am so intrigued to hear our guest thoughts on because that one, his parents, Jeff and Jennifer, also classified as white. They are being prosecuted criminally uh, for their role in all of this, but that one is still unfolding. Ethan Crumley pled guilty. I believe he was 15 in 2021 at the time that this shooting took place. And then at the end there, Connor Pruitt, 13 years old. His buddy, that's the term they used, Philip Bird, 14 years old. That was from the end of 2021 in Florida. They allegedly were researching Columbine, planning an attack got access to a firearm thankfully people told on them they were able to stop all this before anything happened but 13 and 14 they were looking to acquire weapons on the black market they say these cases even though all of these happened subsequent to the publication of the book we will discuss today they all fit the pattern from the book which I found even more I don't know how you however you would like to phrase it staggering brilliant astonishing but they all fit the parameters uh, that we will discuss in the book the attacks against elementary schools generally perpetrated by someone who is older attacks of elementary schools you have more fatalities fewer injuries 
check that happened with uh, Audrey Hale. Uh, even the location, more likely to have these in the West, Midwest, and then the South is kind of third, but close in there at third. And that is where pretty much all of these incidents uh, took place at. Uh, it's staying. All of these folks would be classified as white. So, wow. So uh, fascinating for so many reasons and looking forward to get more detail about these incidents, what patterns we can pick out and even what information parents should maybe share with their children to try to get a better understanding of all of this mayhem terrorism uh, from young people and directed at young people, sometimes very young people. And even we are one year out from Uvalde as well mentioned that just Friday I talk about the parallels to Columbine they abound uh, the specific book that we're talking about today 20 years of school based mass shootings in the United States Columbine to Santa Fe super informative one of the co-authors joining us live to help us dissect all of this Joining us live, I believe, from Washington, D.C., Dr. Angelin Spalding Flowers. Dr. Flowers, are you with us? Yes, I am. Thank you. Thank um, you. And I'm, I'm very happy to be here, although, to be honest, not happy to have to talk about this because one would think that we would have resolved it by now. I mean, to be perfectly honest, um, one of the things my co-author and I said in this book was we hoped the things that we were talking about by the time the book came out would be anomalies and it would be like this blip snapshot in time as opposed to being predictors. And it looks like they were predictors. Mm. Prescient. But, um, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Mm. Oh, no, no. Um, and, and one of the things that you mentioned um, that I want to also piggyback on was this whole notion of the white perpetrator. And one of the things that I don't I'm not sure if it was inspired us or provoked us into writing this book was it was we'd had the shooting in Parkland at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Then three months later, it was Santa Fe, and once again, what are the news people saying? Oh, the victim was, um, the perpetrator was probably mentally ill. And so every time it seems as if a white person kills someone, then there's an excuse. They're mentally ill. A black person kills someone, and they are a criminal. And and so we we kind of that that's what kind of like led us to explore this further. Love it. Let us unpack. And, mm, yes, ma'am. No, no. Go ahead. You know, I can talk forever, <laughs> but I know you probably have some questions. <laughs> yes, ma'am. We will. That's why we showed up to hear you uh, talk, Doctor flowers uh, i guess for listeners since you already pointed out that was one of the motivating factors for you and your co-author uh, katina lane pixley you dr flowers you are a black female is that correct yes i am 
Okay. And you're and co- she is as well. That's took it right out of my mouth. Okay. So we got two black females <laughs> who purposely write this book. Keep that in mind as we kind of proceed. Well, I guess, well, let me ask it now then, since you already, the cover for people who can't see it, 20 years of school-based mass shootings in the United States. I think before I knew that you two were black females, the cover was like, wait a minute, the red, black, and green. Hmm. <laughs> it did yeah, raise an okay. eyebrow. So was that deliberate or did that just happen by chance that 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 was deliberate no that was deliberate they told us we could pick three colors and those were the three we picked i see i see okay and i will say for listeners someone posted a rack of books on columbine since we started reading uh about this subject matter a couple weeks ago and i mean around there are tons They've, i mean it's been about a quarter century now so there are lots of books more coming on this subject and school shootings in general, tons of books on this. Dr. Fowler's work, I believe thus far, is the only one written by a black person. I'm sure there are others. Are there bunches of, do you know tons of black people who write books about these school shootings, Dr. Flowers? No, not necessarily. Hmm. Um. Important. You know, it's it's a very important area, and but one of the things is it's an area where, you know, a black person might say, well, you know, that doesn't really have any relevance to us. It's not typically black schools where these mass shootings are occurring, which is very true. We we found some interesting demographics about the schools, but that might not be the case forever. But what really motivated us was just the stark dichotomy in the way um, perpetrators were presented. For what's at heart, these are crimes, right? You go in and you shoot someone, that's a crime. And it's not that we're saying that this is something Let's be honest. Rational people do not engage in school shootings, all right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're suffering from severe mental illness. And as long as that is the default position or default causal explanation, then we stay locked in preventative things like, well, you know, let's, let's have more red flag laws. Let's not let people with mental illness Um, get firearms. And the reality is only a couple of the shooters that we looked at had a pre-existing mental health diagnosis, which means none of them would have been precluded. Important point, and we'll get into some of the details because that Columbine, that's what we're reading. That would be exactly the type of incident that you're talking about. I guess before we get to the details of your book, for our listeners, sure we have a good number of folks this is their first time hearing from you can we get kind of just a brief bio the work that you do dr flowers yes um i am program coordinator for the crime justice and security studies program at the university of the district of columbia and in our program we have a master of science in homeland security and it is the first 
graduate program in Homeland Security or Emergency Management established at an HBCU, and we're very proud of that. And we have an undergraduate program in a Bachelor of Arts in Administration of Justice. And we, we like to think we've been responsible for producing 20 or 30 years of progressive minority law enforcement personnel. So, and so in addition to running those, I teach. My research focuses is, is a broader area of, you know, social and community destabilization. So um, I've done work looking at emergency management issues, um, some cybersecurity work. In addition to the, the work on, you know, the mass shooting, right now I'm working on something dealing with white nationalism because I, as a person of color, I find this a personal threat, but also it's a, it's a national threat. I like to research and I love teaching. It's, it's what I do. Wow. I don't really view this as hopping off topic. What, what research are you doing on white nationalism, Dr. Flowers? So looking at the way that white nationalism has become normalized. So you, you, know, you know the saying, when we talk about somebody who talks too much, we might say, oh, well, they said the quiet part out loud. And we kind of wink like, you know, you're not supposed to do that. Well, now they're saying the quiet part out loud. Behavior and that are words that even six years ago, people would not think twice about doing. But for instance, the fact that state legislatures are, have systematically worked to disenfranchise minority voters. And they're blatant about it. They don't try to hide why they're doing it. And so the biggest problem, as I said, is the whole way that the white nationalism or some say Christian nationalism, those tenets have become normalized. I mean, the reality is you can believe whatever you want to believe. Um, the Constitution gives you the right. As long as you're not yelling fire in a crowded movie theater or inciting violence, you can say what you want to say. The concern, though, is the way that we've seen the systematic movement and rolling back 50 or 60 years worth of progress. And it seems to be okay for a significant group of people for this to happen. I mean, when people can say, let's make America great again, what exactly are they talking about? Are they talking about, like, 1860, when slavery was okay? Or when women did not have the right to vote? Or even the 1960s, before the Stonewall riots? When are they talking about? And they don't see the inconsistency or the incongruity in what they're saying. 
Fascinating, fascinating. That might trickle back into the conversation indirectly as we dig into the book. We shall see. Uh, in fact, even before I get that, I appreciate you giving us all of your lofty credentials, and that is amazing research. Have to keep our eye on that for future publications or what have you. Um, I guess getting down to particularly for this subject matter, like Dr. Flowers, are you a parent? I am. And I have two adult children and two young grandchildren. Wow. Okay. Okay. Congratulations. Let's see. Thank you. For we have parents who listen in to the program, uh, folks who have younger parents, people who have uh, younger children, excuse me, uh, and even like brand new uh, breastfeeding mommies, the whole spectrum. Um, What do since you have older children now? um, What do you suggest parents tell their children about these school shootings from a safety perspective I guess number one about all of these and and just their own safety how would you or what suggestions would you offer to particularly black parents so the thing about it is it is just so hard to be a parent now particularly a parent of young children because there are just so many dangers out there and as black parents we've always had the double burden of We need our children to be safe, to understand what the world is like, but we don't necessarily want to overburden them and make them too anxious. We we don't want our kids to be afraid to go to school, but we do want them to understand that when the teacher says we're going to sit in a circle and be quiet in the dark, that it's important to do that. I remember, I mean, we had fire drills when I was in school. And I'll be honest, we didn't pay much attention to them, but we we did line up and and walk outside. And schools now have fire drills and active shooter drills. And even for fire drills, they have the duck and cover drills. And it's just a level of anxiety that, As a parent, it makes your heart hurt to know that your child has to experience that anxiety. And so what parents, I believe, really appreciate is when the schools have a way of presenting, this is what we're going to do in a way that makes it seem like it's normal with in itself is a problem because this should never be normalized. But remember, we also don't want our children too afraid to go to school. Fascinating. Again, Dr. Angeline Spalding Flowers, author of 20 Years of School-Based Mass Shootings in the United States. Uh, Who was your intended audience for this book? Parents, um, legislators, you know, anyone, actually just anyone, because, and part of it actually is a message to parents, because 
one of the things we say in our concluding chapter is that if you look at these incidents, all of these kids, there were some that were old enough to buy their own weapons, all right? But most of them, the 14, the 15-year-olds, they got these from home. These were parents' weapons. They took them out of a locked gun cabinet that the parent knew the kid had a key to or knew the combination to. And it is as if parents in their mind, they were protecting the guns in the gun cabinet from intruders without realizing the importance of, well, maybe you're trying to protect your children. And, and so the question is, if you have a child and you're concerned about your child's levels of stress, anxiety, um, emotional stability, why would you keep weapons in the house that your child could access? Because the other thing is these 14 and 15-year-olds, shooters, a lot of them we're trying to commit suicide. So why would you have these available to your child in the first place? And, and I know that there's some jurisdictions where, particularly in rural communities, the, the sheriff's office may be 30 miles away. And you, there's an intruder. You want to be able to defend yourself. But that does not require an automatic weapon. And, and so the problem is not only the weapons that we have, and I need to say again, in these 20 years of the cases we looked at, we looked at 17 shootings, starting with Columbine, ending up with Santa Fe. All of the weapons were legally acquired. And, and I think that's telling. Because the other thing is that what distinguishes pre-Columbines, I mean, we had school shootings before Columbine, but what distinguishes the pre-Columbine from the post-Columbine shootings is before Columbine, most of the people were injured. Post-Columbine, it was mostly fatalities. And, and, and the single difference is the availability of assault weapons. And so when we look at what, what conclusions could we draw, there, there were two main conclusions, that assault weapons were responsible for the increased level of fatalities because they're just more lethal. You, you don't have to reload as often. Many of these young people came in with multiple weapons which they got legally from home or their parents got, there were a couple of instances where parents bought the guns for their kids. And interestingly, so far, the, the kids, the case you mentioned of Ethan, where his parents have been checked, have been charged. The only other case we found, and I'm sure there, there are more, but in, in the set of cases we looked at, there was only one instance where a parent was charged um, with having provided the gun. And 
that was um, that was one of the few non-white shooters. Um, he was Native American, and so you have to wonder: Well, are they challenging this father because he wasn't white, and and it was easy to target him? Now, the, the explanation, as these explanations are, made sense. The father had a prohibition, so he was not supposed to be in possession of weapons. So he should not have been buying the weapons for his son in the first place. But that was out of all of these 17 cases, that was the only one where a parent was charged. Now, in some instances, the parent was no longer able to be charged. Um, the Sandy Hook shooter, he was 20. And he could buy, he could not buy the type of weapons he was using legally. His mother bought them for him. Even though he was in her basement and sometimes was so estranged from her that he only communicated through email. She continued to buy these assault weapons for him because this was their shared hobby. And she was the first person he killed before he went to the school and killed 26 teachers and children, mostly children. So... The cows. That is important detail as well in terms of the only person uh, in terms of another parent guardian to be uh, charged. Uh, I know we were currently studying Columbine, as I said, and none of the Eric Harris, Dylan Klebold, their parents were not criminally charged. Uh, I think they were sued uh, civilly and, you know, had whatever financial bill for that. But we thought it was so significant that. Eric Harris, his, uh, or excuse me, Dylan Klebold, his parents, they contacted the police and saying, we think our son may be involved. And then they immediately contacted uh, an attorney uh, and they said that Eric Harris, his family, all of their subsequent conversations were through their attorneys with the enforcement officers. Like, thought that the affluence, in fact, you wrote about the book, you, Columbine is kind of the, I'll just go directly to what you wrote. This is on page to the introduction of all of this, Columbine was selected as the starting point because school-based mass shootings changed in nature with the events that day at Columbine High School. On April 20, 1999, 34 students and staff were killed or injured by two students before they killed themselves. Columbine grabbed the attention of the nation. This was due in part to its high fatality count but also due to the community within which it occurred. Columbine marked a turning point in the public's perception of the ideology of school-based mass shootings, although not fully known or recognized at the time by the policymakers or academic scholars, this was not to be an isolated occurrence. Columbine was symptomatic of the beginning of a change in the landscape of school-based mass shootings. The 20 years that followed Columbine 
witnessed increasing carnage in school-based mass shootings. In that 20 years, an entire generation of young people had time to enter kindergarten and complete college. They have done this under the increasing shadow cast by the awareness that their school could be next. I will stop there, but this kind of sets the introduction for the text. Uh, just, I wanted you to talk just, I, I think, a, a part of that change in the landscape. There's so much attention. Like, there's so many books and documentaries. Uh, worship. They, I didn't even know that the term Columbiner existed, uh, where so many of these shooters or individuals, pe- period, uh, in white people, period, have said, Eric Harris, Dylan Klebold, I empathize with them. I want to go to their, the memorial site and dress like them. And that seems, I have been inspired. That was the word we heard in the audio segment from the 13 and 14 year old white teens. I was inspired by Columbine. Can you kind of speak to how that has contributed or if you think it has to this increase in these events? Well, I, there there is a level of copycat because there's several sh- shootings that occurred after that where they were directly trying to mold themselves on Columbine to maybe do better than Harris and Klebold, um, using different strategies. But the thing about Columbine that we find in some of the other shootings is that is is that far-right extremism thread that runs through it. So, um, in fact, many, many of the school shooters in the set we looked at had far-right ideations in that they, um, you know, had neo-Nazi memorabilia in their internet um, social media or in their writings, or they had a worldview that was distinctly linked to that. Harris and Klebold themselves, the Columbine shooters, modeled, I mean, their their hero was basically Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City bombing, which had occurred four years before. And in fact, they had planned for Columbine to be an explain, we're trying to have an explosion like Oklahoma City, and they had planned for it to be on April the 19th, the anniversary of Oklahoma City, but the person they were buying their ammunition from was late, so they couldn't do it on the 19th. And in fact, they had set explosive devices in the school that were supposed to go off. They did not go off. And that's when they entered shooting. And so, you know, I think one of the reasons you see a lot of this is, you know, I hate to blame everything on the Internet and and social media, but um, it's very easy to go online and basically self-radicalize. And in, in the far right world, these people are, or heroes you want to be like them i don't 
I saw just that term, Columbiner. It seemed like when you were speaking with us in the introduction, Dr. Flowers, and you were talking about uh, how white nationalism has become more mainstream and acceptable, I see so many individuals who are classified as white who they're Columbiners. They, they talk with so much empathy and sympathy that, oh, Eric Harris, Dylan Klebold, and they just need a hug, and I was picked on too, and I, I just was stunned because I just had no, I just didn't know. I'm st- still learning, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it seems far beyond just a, a small sect of far writers or racist white people it seems for some reason they uh, many many white people in Brazil that's what I said that's how we started reading this in Brazil 2019 they had a school attack the same thing all the way in South America they're looking to Columbine they have copycatters in Russia and France I just it baffled my mind uh, that they uh, are such revered figures it's it's uh it's difficult. I get. It's difficult, given what you you already said in talking about this. If instead of Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, we were talking about Leroy and Jamal, could you conceive of them being? Oh, she chuckled already. She's chuckling. Could you conceive of of them being worshipped and revered? all over the world and we got to make comic books about them and movies about them and dress like them and come make a shrine out of there. Could you imagine that if these were black killers, bombers, as you say? No. And in fact, if we were talking about them, um, the people talking about them probably would be under investigation. Mm. Mm. And, and, you know, that's, that, that's the other thing that runs through this these shootings because particularly the the ones that had a lot of fatalities and um, injuries combined, because those communities tended to be more affluent, there's a lot of precursor behavior that was overlooked. I mean, Harris and Clebo probably should have been arrested in advance. They had... Um, videos online where they basically were killing different classmates, which, you know, a classmate found. And and this was reported to the police. Um, They had been investigated before. One of them hacked into the school computer. And, And so, you know, if this had been Jamal or Malcolm, they wouldn't have been in their nice school. They probably would have been pulled out, and if not in a juvenile detention facility, they would have been sent to a school for children who should be in juvenile detention facilities. I just wanted to make two quick points. One, in terms of if these were black people worshiping black terrorists and bombers and killer of children uh, that they would be on a watch list some of the white people who worship Klebold and Harris Columbiners as they say are on watch lists and it seems they should be because of 
their conduct and the type of things that they have said, precursor type behavior. Uh, the other component with Klebold and Harris, and you even write about this, there was a search warrant that wasn't executed. If exactly Leroy, Jamal, me had a police search warrant. Hey, these guys are out with pipe bombs. We think I cannot imagine a Khalif Browder stealing backpacks. I cannot imagine a universal. Eh. Or, or if there had been an unexecuted search warrant, there would have been an investigation in terms of why that search warrant had not been executed before the shooting took place. Mm, great point. I just, I mean, the end, even speaking of, because they were uh, known for letting off firecrackers and explosives and their affinity for firearms, which seems to be a big thread throughout a number of these cases, even after the publication of your book, uh, the anarchist cookbook, uh, they've had all this talk about book banning. Is that one of the books that they say, Hey, that one has got to go that we got way too much nonsense from this one. Nope. I come on, come on. <laughs> I, I have not seen that. Now I'm sure that it's possible that somewhere somebody actually saw it and banned it. But one of the things that that's happening with these book bannings is people aren't even reading these books that, that they're complaining about. I mean, how do you ban the inaugural poem? as the jurisdiction in Florida did. Man, the Gormans, the hill I rise. So, no, these are not people who, who read. And so they've never heard of the anarchist cookbook because it's not on their um, ultra-conservative list of books to complain about in your child's school. I mean, the woman who complained, who filed the complaint, the single parent who filed the complaint about Amanda Gorman's poem, said, well, you know, I didn't really read all of it. Um, I don't read. Um, basically, somebody told her that this wasn't a good poem. And so that's what's happening. No, they're not complaining about the anarchist cookbook. There's going to be a, a petition or we got to get books taken out of the library. I would think maybe that would be top of the list, but no, <laughs> got poems and such to grouse about. Um, and I want to make sure I do not minimize uh, Columbine is a failed bombing where the backup plan was we will shoot and kill 13 people. This was supposed to be a bombing where hundreds they even bragged that they were going to kill more than timothy mcveigh april 19 uh that is so important because i i did not process this event as a failed bombing uh at all but i didn't study this event until now very important that she makes that explicitly uh in the text uh you <clears throat> also in the text you talk about this study and are very meticulous in detailing what you all sought out to do and explaining exact for your purposes qualifies 
as a mass school shooting and then even getting to the racial component uh, you all right residential population and density were discussed in regards to the overall jurisdiction at the community level population factors examined include median age and race ethnicity since the information being used is census data the race designations provided in this section are those utilized by the US Census Bureau it should be noted that the percentages for race are slightly less than 100% since they do not include those who indicated more than one race or those whose choice not to indicate a race as an ethnicity Hispanic Latino identification co-occurs with race and therefore its percentage should not be added to race and you just move on from there why did you all want to set these parameters for your study in, in dealing with racial classifications well, one of the things we were looking at, we, we looked at school-based shootings from different perspectives. We were trying to look at the social and environmental parameters in which they occurred. And so one of the things we looked at was the community in which these occurred, particularly those that had high levels of fatalities and injuries and was it something that was different about those communities than other communities? And, and so um, we looked at income, we looked at density, as you said, we looked at um, median age, we looked at race and ethnicity, and overwhelmingly, with a um, couple of exceptions, the high, the high fatality and injury incidents occurred in predominantly white, relatively affluent communities. And if I'm... Now... Look, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. If I'm looking at the... If I read the report correctly, in these predominantly white areas, it seemed that some of the kind of factors where... One, easy access to firearms, particularly for folks under 18 years of age, and then higher income areas of affluence like Columbine, higher level of fatalities. Were those two of the major trends you all saw? Yes, they, they were. They mm. were. And, and, you know, one of the things we looked at is was, how support, was there a supportive gun culture in that community? And in these cases, there was a support of gun culture. You know, people had guns. And, and that's why I keep saying these are legal guns. These are not illegal guns. But, you know, if I could just throw it in there, the legal gun trafficking feeds into other jurisdictions. So if you remember the shooting at the... Um, the food festival in California, the person brought the weapons in from Nevada. They were legally purchased in Nevada. They could not be brought into California. The mass shooter brought them into California. So weapons travel across state borders. 
And that then fuels, you know, homicides in other communities. If you can give us some of the detail, and I even pulled that up just to give folks the detail. That's an early one. This is from Chapter 2. Uh, you write, in the summer of 2019, three public mass shootings occurred during the same week. The first occurred on Monday, July 29, at the Gilroy Garlic Festival in California, one of the nation's best-known food festivals. Santino William Leggin killed three persons and wounded 12 before killing himself. The AK-47 he used was legally purchased in the neighboring state of Nevada, but it could be neither sold nor transported in California where the shooting occurred. Well, Stanley, you go on to give the details of several more of these with assault weapons. Uh, but going back to the, the culture of guns, and I really wanted you to give us some detail on this to, to kind of, because you in the book, you say that even when we're talking about this, we're not even talking hunting because you all go out and do the study on that. And in many instances, that's not even what we're talking about for leisure gun activity. So when you talk about gun, we're talking about white people. What exactly is white gun culture? So we, we have, there is this myth about the person and they're going hunting with these guns, but you do not hunt with an AK-47. What we found was that the majority of people who have these guns are used, they use them for target, they use them for target shooting. Not for hunting. So, you know, and, and that's a reality that has not caught up with what I will call a romanticized notion of, you know, well, people are just hunting. We don't want to take away their guns. No, these people are target. They're shooting at targets. This, this is what they do. And so you, you have to wonder at what point is shooting at the target no longer sufficient. Um, you know, the other thing about these communities, these states that have supportive gun cultures is it turns on itself. So it's really illogical because the more guns there are, the more legal guns, you find suicide rates among white males are higher. But what really drives this gun culture is fear. And, and it's fear of people of color, fear of black people. It's, it's fear of, of the immigrant coming across the border. White people are made to feel afraid. And what that does is Let's face it, the NRA is a lobbying organization for the American weapons industry. People then go out and buy guns to protect themselves, they say. But it's driven by fear. And this is also where you see the normalization of white nationalism, because blackness is, is danger, it's predatory, it's it's evil that's how it's portrayed and so you need these weapons to defend yourself but then you think about the illogical things that people do so i'm an 85 year old white man 
and I am, quote, afraid, unquote, of the black child on my porch. So I open the door and then shoot him. If I'm that afraid, keep the door closed. And and so what we see is this increase, this expansive gun culture. And, you know, the other interesting thing is that when you have a mass shooting, you would think that we, you know, jurisdictions would tighten their gun laws. But what we found is that jurisdictions that have Republican state legislatures, when there's a mass shooting, they tend to make it easier to get guns. Which, if you think about it, is is counterintuitive unless there's something else driving it, which is fear of black people. Context of white supremacy. In fact, I'll even back up uh, Dr. Flowers. So when you said you just said fear, that is a big part of this white gun culture. That's what we were talking about. That's what's driving and not just any old type of guns, assault weapons. Got to get these and, and going to the gun range and putting up targets. What is all this for? Fear of Leroy. When you say uh, white nationalism is, is this fear and, and what have you, uh, is that, I'll start at the slow way. What's Give us, what do you mean when you say white nationalism, so we can understand that term? Okay, white nationalism is basically a worldview that says that the United States is and is meant to be a white nation or a white Christian nation. And, you know, everyone else just really doesn't exist or doesn't need to be here. And and so you then focus on things like um, immigration and you have Charlottesville where you have people marching, chanting, um, you will not replace us. You know, the, the great replacement theory is also part of white nationalism. The, the belief that people of color are reproducing and will one day, and census actually bears this out, will be, we will be a majority, a minority majority nation where people of color will exceed the number of people identifying as white. And that's terrifying for them. Are you in Washington, D.C., or close to that? I think you already told us. I'm just verifying. Dr. Flowers? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. Are you familiar with uh, Dr. Francis Cress-Welsing? I am, yes. Okay. Okay. Um, The Cress Theory of Color um, Domination. Okay. The confrontation, yes. if my memory is correct, but okay. Do you, yeah. Do you think her her theory is correct about white genetic annihilation, and that's what's driving white people's conduct with regards to mistreating black people, non-white people? Well, I think that certainly, 
you have a segment of white people who are afraid of being eradicated. Um, you know, as I said, fear. I mean, ultimately, the, the key point about her theory isn't whether it's true or not, but whether people believe it or believe the tenets. And, and and I think that some do. Um, but also, the thing about it is that a lot of this is deliberately stoked by people who have their own agenda. So, for instance, remember the, the, the battles over affirmative action back in the 1980s. And um, you had, you know, basically corporations convinced white blue-collar factory workers that um, the reason they were losing their jobs were because, you know, blacks or women were hired, as opposed to they're losing their jobs because the company figured out it was cheaper to relocate the factory to a country where they could pay people a dollar a day. And actually, I mean, it's the same thing we saw pre-Civil War. And so think about the Civil War. It was not the large slave owners who were fighting. It was, it was the poor white farmer who didn't own any slaves. And you're asking, why is this person fighting to support slavery? But they had been convinced by the minority of the population who own large numbers of slaves that, um, you know, okay, you have nothing, you're a dirt farmer, but guess what? You're better than a black person. And, and so, you know, that, that's, that's the motivation factor. Um, we see it with politicians who use it to um, to get votes and stir up that type of fear and hatred and animosity. Successfully throughout many, 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 many jurisdictions, even down in, in you were talking about Florida, where they uh, put the poem on the banned book list, Ron DeSantis Land 2024, indeed. You, yeah. Uh, you on page 98, Dr. Flowers, this is chapter uh, six uh, in your text. Uh, you write, the theme of failing masculinity has been a recurring theme in explanations for school shootings. Since we've already at the outset, we're talking about white boys here, white men here. Uh, what exactly is this recurring theme of failing white masculinity? What what is happening here as a, as a motivation for these school shootings? Can you unpack that for us, Dr. Flowers? Right. Well, so white male masculinity at the extreme is is based on notions of dominance. You're dominating your environment. You're dominating the people around you. And so when you have people who, I mean, they're not dominant in their lives, 
they 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 try to lash out. So you actually see this a lot with incels. It believe it or not, it's a group. In stands for involuntarily celibate incels. And of finding a lot of these shooters have links to incels. They blame women for the fact that they are celibate. And so they're also very misogynist. But it also is about power and domination. And so a gun is a way to assert your masculinity. Think about heroes of American culture. Think of John Wayne, you know, all the heroes, and, and they have guns. And, and so when you are unsure of yourself and you have a gun, in your mind that makes you powerful. And not just a gun. What you have in your hands is a weapon of war, a weapon that belongs on the battlefield that can you out over 100, Adam Landis shot 159 bullets in under five minutes. And, and that's just a lot of power for some people to feel. And then, so then one of the things you want to, think about is if, if we start with the notion that, you know, failing masculinity and feelings of dominance are triggering some of this, how is it that we address it? Or equally as important, how do we recognize it so we can identify where there is a, maybe a potential problem? And while some of these shooters were very obvious problems. They, they were behavioral, behavioral problems. They had been put out of school, um, you know, were in special schools because they'd been kicked out of the regular school. Some of them kind of flew under the radar. They were quiet, and so they were not noticed. It was only in hindsight when you went back and looked at things they had written that you realized, oh, yeah, this is very disturbing. And in many cases, people knew. You know, their, their friends knew. They, they might have mentioned something to somebody. But it, it, it becomes challenging to deal with. So I think the point you're making is that we're not only, it's not only a, say, a racial issue with failing masculinity, it, it also is a, a gender issue with levels of misogyny. Think about how we told men they were powerful. And for those who kind of miss the memo, this is a this is a challenging world for them. I mean, there are women in classrooms. There are women who may be their supervisors. Um, 
and you see yourself falling farther and farther behind. Now, some of this is deliberate in that, you know, no job stays the same forever. When the car was invented, um, stables closed up. I remember when Barack Obama was president and he wanted to, I mean, he had funds set aside to provide training in computer programming in these communities where coal mines were closing. But because being a coal miner was so linked to their self-identity, many people refused to go to the training and, and shift careers. So they end up being left behind. And then, so you have an example of failing masculinity. Okay, Dr. Flowers, if, I mean, I am told every day that there is no greater example of failed masculinity than Leroy, Jamal, me, the worthless black male. Why does does Jamal do Jamal and Leroy? Do they go and shoot up the school, or do they have ambitions to go and carry out these? Because I mean, hey, who has a vendetta like Jamal and Leroy? They got they caught, even got a name for it—the school to prison pipeline—to expressly get Jamal quickly to the jail. So if anybody's got a vendetta, I'm going to come and it is payback. You put me in those remedial classes and got me on all the medication and gave me all those unjust suspensions and everything else. And ooh, we, you got it coming. Are we just really good at intercepting Jamal before he goes to do this? Or why doesn't Jamal go and take out his failed masculinity like this? That, that actually is a really good question. And, um, and, you know, this is not to say that, you know, black people don't shoot other people. But when you look at these mass shooters, they tend to be a certain demographic. So the question is, well, why is this? Now, you have to wonder... So if you look in urban areas now, and the other thing is these largely occur in suburban and rural areas. Um, urban areas, the reality is that many of the schools have metal detectors at the door. So, you know, Jamal couldn't get a weapon in if he wanted to. What tends to happen is, um, I mean, so you might find shootings um, outside the school but they also tend to be targeted shootings as distinct from, I'm just going to go kill 10 to 20 people. And, you know, that's something also that it's hard to put a handle on. I mean, I don't want to say why don't we have black mass shooters because we don't really want to have them. But the other thing is you just have to wonder when you look at 
the warning signs that some of these mass shooters did give off, you, you kind of have to think that, no, they, they would have arrested Jamal by now. And we could not have had the chance to do it. (laughs) Absolutely. We could not have uh, the Leroy and Jamal version of Columbine and the same thing. Not that we want that. I'm certainly not saying that we should. I just, if anything, it just makes me further ponder the uniquely white nature, white male nature of this pathology because even the even with Columbine we could take some of the other examples too but them saying they were bullied and picked on like oh my god are you serious like who is more bullied and picked I mean she already mentioned school integration Ruby Bridges did she get mad and ooh these white people in New Orleans got it coming and I mean you fast forward no but her book has been banned her her, the movie about the Ruby Bridges movie by Disney was banned yes that was bad. You can get an assault weapon, but you cannot watch the movie about Ruby Bridges, who was called names and bullied and did not say, man, I'm going to write in my drama to kill everybody here. They've called me a nigger and spit on me and threatened to kill me. And it, Like, are you serious? Like, come on, that even that, like, you got to tell me. Anywho, uh, but, you... But- I, I, you know, I do want to say that that actually is a really intriguing research subject. You know, just off the top, I would say one of the things is that with these white mass shooters, a lot of them do have far right ideologies, and you don't typically find that with a lot of black people. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that's just, uh, intriguing question. Why do you see, why is this such a stark difference? I'm just, I could understand the logic. Like if Jamal, I could under because this is beyond name calling. Like, oh yeah, they you got fifteen suspensions and an expulsion and blah blah blah. And they had you that like, oh, not condoning it at all. But I could, I could because this is much more than just name calling. But I mean, dang, you do not see that. Not, not saying I want to see that. And then as you talked about the affluence, ease of access, it's probably not as easy for Jamal to get a firearm. And even in fact. That with to see that thread so continuously, where people talk about what do we do, and you already talked about many, the vast majority of the weapons used in these school shootings, they are legally purchased, and even some of the most recent of these, uh, Audrey Hale, Nashville, legally purchased mm-hmm. firearms. I said, how that makes it even more complicated in a white culture that is rife with guns out of fear of Leroy and other Negras. Uh, what to do then if, okay, we're going to put these bands in place, mom and dad go buy 50,000 guns, they got them in the house, and then all the white children have access to, and this has been passed on for generations. White people talking about buying guns for their children, boys and girls from like 10, 11. I think we heard some of that with uh, Columbine, heard that with Adam Lanza, these so-called straw purchases. Uh, that's even in the Murdoch case. Now, that's not a school shooting, but 
same thing where the hey that's just the cult in the south south carolina we get our guns and we go out in the woods and target practice we're not hunting we just target practice how then uh do you solve this problem if if it seems if unless i misread the answer you're suggesting is hey maybe we should try to discourage the commonality of seeing young people teens with guns maybe we shouldn't make that so prevalent maybe it shouldn't be so easy for a teenager a 15 year old a 17 year old to get their hands on an assault weapon if that's something that might help reduce these instances man how is that accomplished in white culture where you got to have 50 guns because of Leroy well actually I remember reading an article one time that suggested that um if people were required to have were required to insure their guns like they have to insure their cars, that would be the end of it because insurance companies would not the insurance costs would be so high because of the risk that that you would find the number of those types of weapons assault weapons decreasing the legal purchases. Because you could not insure it. Mm. I just, I don't see the, this is one, I don't see the will in terms of law policymakers, politicians, any state really. I do not see the will to solve this problem, even to move in the direction. As you said, it seems like the trend is they'll have these school shootings and then they'll make the laws so that it becomes easier to gain access to, which would seem to be, as you said, the exact opposite logic. It was Sandy Hook. That was Adam Lanza. Legal straw purchases. Mm-hmm. That was the one where his mom, you already talked about it. They had the estranged right. relationship. They only communicated by email, but they bond over firearms. Now, are you serious? Not baking, not cycling. Not baseball, gardening, bird watch, fire, assault weapons. Let me say, as a parent, you're mm. living in my basement. You're not speaking to me. I'm not going to be buying you presents. <laughs> I thought Dr. Flower was going to say firearms. Which I said, oh, that's legit. She said, presents. <laughs> no pillows, nothing. Like, if we're not on speaking time. (laughs) From a parent, take it from mom. All of that straw purchases for her child. That shooting, when they had that many deaths up in New England, along with the fatalities, and nothing done. We're still here talking about the exact same problem all these years later. No laws passed. Exact same thing. Looks like the trend is even getting worse. I said then. Well, it's, yeah. yeah I, as long as we can keep blaming it on mental illness, that's their excuse to not have to do anything. Mm, you you talked about, you mentioned Jonathan Metzl's book, uh, Protest, or you you did not mention his book. You mentioned one of his studies on gun violence, which I not I thought you were going to mention protest psychosis, uh, which is important because he talks about in that book uh, black people who 
try to work against racism, white supremacy were labeled as racist. Uh, and they put terms on just like in slavery was draftomania. If you tried to get away from the plantation, like, oh, my God, this slave is crazy. And same thing. If Leroy says, I don't like this racism thing, we got to do something about it. Like, oh, my God, you've got schizophrenia. We got to put you. Well, in this- yeah, and to sh- show you the prevalence of racism, what Jonathan Metzl did in his book, Dying of Whiteness, he talked about how even when it was against their own self-interest in these communities, white people would deliberately take actions that would they knew would harm themselves to avoid what they saw as a black person getting something or getting over. So jurisdictions like, um, you know, Mississippi or someplace that did not expand Medicaid, even though you had all these poor white people who needed it or jurisdictions that don't spend money on schools or don't control weapons, even though they're shooting themselves with the guns, they're committing suicide. Oh, she set me up so nicely um, that I'm just, we just talked about that. Dr. Flowers, like the exact point that you made, just not from that book from Dr. Metzl, uh, but we talked about that, how when, dedication, you know, I had to catch that listeners dedication, white dedication to white supremacy is so great that even in states where they would benefit from the Affordable Care Act, ah, it's attached to that nigra, don't want it. Well, wait a minute, you might die. That's OK. <laughs> like that. Wow. And to connect that with your work, it's not protest psychosis. You cite Jonathan Metzl uh, and Kenneth McLeish mass shootings mental illness and the politics of american firearms uh, and even connected directly to that you write a federal minimum age of 21 years for long gun ownership or possession is an example of the type of action which should be considered it is acknowledged that while possession of both alcohol and cigarettes is prohibited for those under the age of 21, it is not uncommon for minors to gain access. The prohibition is about laying the groundwork for a gradual rather than an immediate change in behavior. One argument for raising the drinking age was that 18-year-old high school students were able to legally buy alcohol, which they then shared with their underage friends. Raising the drinking age to 21 was, therefore, also about moving alcohol access out of high schools. A federal minimum age for long gun possession is about making it less common to see young adolescents walking around with guns. As a concession to those already legally able to possess long guns, they could be grandfathered in with the minimum age raised incrementally. The fact that even this which seems kind of modest, reasonable, dare I say, the fact that this totally impossible after Sandy Hook, totally impossible now, 2023, that right there, I started saying it in 2012, I've added so much more evidence to it, but I started saying, 
white people do not care about children that is a part of white culture there are things that are valued even more so than white children that is the system of white supremacy racism where even maybe we could do this to keep white children safe no don't ask again that's basically been the response it i mean is this re- this could be something that could be done right what you're saying federal minimum age yes. easily accomplished yes not possible at all although this what it it's easily it's theoretically possible it's not going to happen and even if congress had the will to do it it's not clear how it would fare on the supreme court which right now seems to view the second amendment as the only amendment that is not permitted to have any limitations. I mean, every, every right has limitations. So for instance, yes, you have a right to free speech, but it's against the law to incite a riot. You have the right to protest, peacefully protest, but you have to get a permit. And there are restrictions, time, place, and manner restrictions. Even reasonable constraints on the Second Amendment that jurisdictions had are being unraveled and discarded by this current court. Context of white supremacy, Dr. Welsing called it the great equalizer, uh, the value that whites place on guns. you on 129. I'll see if folks have any questions they want to get in with Dr. Flowers while we have her, but I had not really considered this in depth. I guess I hadn't thought about it enough. Some of the wacky responses that they give as opposed to, eh, maybe we will limit assault weapons or maybe we'll raise the age, minimum age to access these type of firearms. Yeah. As opposed to that, Maybe we should arm the teachers <laughs> like that would help to solve this problem. Uh, you write this is on page uh, 118, chapter 17. Uh, the reality is that individuals with a concealed carry permit are already able to carry weapons on school premises. Although standards, training, even disclosure requirements vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Menchu's concern is with the impact that arming teachers would have on school climate and particularly the impact on students of color. This is not a trivial concern. A 2018 report by the Government Accountability Office found that serious disciplinary disparities existed for black students, boys, and students with disabilities. American Indian, American Indians, Alaskan Natives were also overrepresented. However, the greatest disparities were for black students. I would suspect black boys, but the disciplinary disparities included actions such as in school suspension, out of school suspension, expulsion, corporal punishment. Yikes! And what in the world? Who is getting spanked? Come on. Referral to law enforcement and school related arrests. Black students represented 15.5% of the student population, but they accounted for 39% of all school suspensions. Girls were underrepresented in disciplinary actions. However, black girls were overrepresented. 
19% of students with disabilities were black, but they accounted for 36% of students with disabilities who were suspended from school. These disparities start in preschool and are consistent regardless of poverty level of the school, the grade level of the school, or the type of public school. When you factor in teachers with guns and factor in the impact of unconscious bias, the situation is ripe for students to be shot by teachers. It is this type of hostile climate to which Minshew refers. Not addressed are the liability issues that would arise when a teacher shot a student who appeared dangerous but was not. I will stop there. I had not I'm not a student, so hopefully I would have thought about it more then, but I mean geez. Jamal Leroy are always dangerous. Like Oh my God! <laughs> I can't even. I can't well, even imagine. And so, as a as a parent, I had a girl and a boy, and yes, I mean that would be very worrisome for me. Um, and and girls are also black girls. One of the reasons they are overrepresented is because we don't see black children as children. We see them as short adults. Remember, um, maybe within the past year or two, this nine-year-old black girl was doing some science experiment and doing something with the leaves of the trees, and this white man called the police and said, a short black woman is, is walking around, you know, looking at the trees. She's nine. She's a kid. She's not a short black woman. But, but what he saw was adult. That's the same reason the kid got shot looking, trying to pick his brother up. And, and so as a, a black, as a parent of black children, you become very worried in terms of how your children are perceived by the adults that they have to spend time with. Yikes. The cows. Again, our, de- our guest, Dr. Angeline Spalding Flowers, attempted black parent, most difficult job in the world. Oof. Um, as I said, I had not even really considered that, but yikes. That is all kinds of rife for disaster uh, with the way things are, are currently set up. Do you have any insight i know in in the book I already mentioned it before but the the pattern you all talk about in terms of in areas of affluence white affluence the higher the income the more fatalities if there's a mass school shooting in the area what what might be the relationship there between higher income well actually what we found was that we we took the the incidents that basically exceeded the average and looked at those. And they all, with variations, the community surrounding the school was more affluent than, say, the rest of the city or the state.
state or in some cases even the national median income. In some states, and we call it relative affluence because even communities, for instance, um, the, the reservation that Jeffrey Weiss, where Jeffrey Weiss lived, and it was below the median national income, but it was still like $1,000 higher than the rest of the surrounding community. And, and then you look at Sandy Hook, which was like 90000 over the national median income. And you, you have to wonder, and some researchers have touched on this, if part of the challenge is that in affluent communities where, um, you know, everyone is doing well, you tend to assume that children don't have problems. So you look at some of the kids, for instance, they came from very troubled backgrounds. And you have to wonder why social services never removed them from their home. But we don't necessarily expect to have those types of problems in what we consider, say, good neighborhoods, and I'm putting quotation marks around good. That's so fascinating, especially with uh, the quotation marks around good. In reading Columbine, one of the words that stuck out, and even just hearing others uh, talk about uh, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, the word wholesome is used to describe them as one no one has, yeah that's not the word i would have used but <laughs> you know like no one has ever called me wholesome uh i, I don't even know what that means when we're talking about people uh and which there was a search warrant for the they should have been wholesome. like what do you mean wholesome <laughs> like they're sitting here admiring timothy mcveigh and doing reports on Adolf Hitler like what do you mean wholesome and even the affluence I think as we were reading about doing our research the affluence that these I mean that's consistent even Adam Lanza as you go on and look through many of these cases uh, but Eric Harris Dylan Klebold they have a BMW they have psychology classes offered at their school they can leave the Mm -hmm. campus to go get lunch wherever they want and then drive their spiffy BMW back when they want to, like both of their parents, well-educated, have great jobs. Like, what in the world? Like, what? I can't even get my mind around the amount. Like, we were just baffled. Like, did you all have psychology class at your high school? (laughs) Like, I couldn't even leave my high school to go get lunch. And they had all of this. And we were bullied. We didn't, you all picked on us and we're upset or even Eric Harris, just the psychopath. Like, you know, I'm, I'm smarter and more powerful and you all don't recognize that. And, you know, from just going from what he wrote in his journal, but it is just baffling uh, the, the affluence in these environments where you continue to see these sort of attacks at, uh, did you want to add anything to that one, Dr. Flowers? Um, no, I, I think that's accurate. And, it is something that we, we have to get a handle on. For instance, 
think about it. We've got people who are working two, we have parents who are working two and three jobs just to keep a roof over their, their children's heads. And um, there isn't a lot of time to talk with your children because you're too busy trying to keep a roof over their heads, food on the table. And so then you look at affluent communities and you would think that, well, surely, you know, these people have time to talk to their kids. How did you not see this? And, and to be honest, that's probably, a scary, that's probably a scary question that most parents have to deal with because we don't always know what's going on in our children's minds. And I don't want to generalize, but I think part of what it speaks to is in certain communities, kids have a lot, kids have a level of freedom that they don't necessarily have in other communities in terms of not necessarily accounting for where they're going, what they're doing, because they are good kids, quote unquote. Again, with the quotation marks. If We do have folks who dialed in with a question, so I want to get their hands. If I could just get gentle pushback on that one, Dr. Flowers, just to get your response. Uh, and I certainly ignore that. I don't have children. That's number one. I do not have children. Two, uh, certainly, once you have children, you don't know everything they're doing. You know, you're not around them all day long. And even if you have surveillance, like you don't, you don't know everything they're doing. Uh, but that's it. Um, we talked about the straw purchases, which are rampant throughout uh, the text and these uh, events where frequently it's other family members, not always, but frequently other family members are purchasing these weapons. And Adam Lanza, we're not even on speaking terms, really. But you facilitate me being able to get these firearms. And that was the case with a lot of these white parents. And even within that white gun culture where white children having firearms is so pervasive, even I would say celebrate it going out to target practice whether it's going out in the woods or what have you and firing that whole lore even hunting in some instances but not as much of that um that's such a celebrated thing that a white even a white child with weapons ammunition firearms even bombs anarchist cookbook that is kind of a normalized aspect of white culture uh, i don't think it's that a lot of these white ethan crumbly his parents knew they were not ignorant. They were not unaware. They texted him. The key is to not get caught. I think a lot of these white parents are very, or maybe they don't know all the details, but they are not, you know, wow. I had, where did Adam get all these guns from? Like, I think a lot of these white parents, just white children having guns and bombing things and being violent. That is a normalized aspect of white culture. What do you think? Does the evidence support that in any way? Well, I think that it depends on who you're talking about. So, for instance, in the in the static incidents that we looked at, having guns were very normalized. You know, it's kind of interesting because, once again, 
there is a class divide. So whenever you find studies done on, um, you know, criminology studies, they always are studies of lower class kids as if affluent kids don't engage in criminal activity. And we know they do because self-report studies say they do. And so, for instance, you have these studies that look at, um, once again, going back to the failed masculinity, but talking about the excessive masculinity is what's expected. And those were all, basically, they looked at lower class gang behavior and things like that. But we see the same things in these more affluent communities. But, you know, because it's an affluent community, it's not stigmatized. I guess that's really the only way to, to, to say it. It's just not stigmatized. I mean, anytime you can have, you can post online how you're going to kill your classmates and not get arrested for that. You know, that that suggests the extent to which behavior is permissible or at least overlooked. You know that, oh, all boys will be boys, wink, wink, nod, nod. It's, it's very similar. Jamal is not allowed to just boys be other than that, that. In fact... They tell you, Jamal, you are going to be charged as an adult. That's generally the way it applies the other way. But yes, the uh, hmm, wholesome white boys, um, even with the Columbine, Eric Harris, they went in. They didn't even say that they went in and he had like hidden his plans and things underneath the mattress or what have you. Like it was just laid out like the gloves and 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 they had been planning this for a year yes (laughs) that's what i mean like come on like i mean really like for a whole year his pan like and he's getting in trouble with the police and making bombs and all of this leaving stuff out in the room you didn't go in his room for a whole year man i mean I cannot wait to see what happens with the Ethan Crumley case in Michigan. I cannot wait. I want to see if they have more text messages. All of it. Maybe that they start criminally prosecuting some of these parents. Maybe that will bring about some changes. Well, Uh, and in in this case, you know, this was an instance where the school actually caught it. Right. mm -hmm. And the school called his parents and they tried to send him home. Parents refused to take him. You know, so, I mean, this this is kind of one of those unique cases. I mean, a lot of times schools don't catch it in time. For instance, the Virginia case with the six-year-old mm-hmm. where the teacher said, um, you know, he's got a gun, and they're like, oh, no, he doesn't. But this time they actually listened to the teacher and called the parents in. It's unfortunate they couldn't send him home without the parents taking him. Mm, I think that's another one. Wow. 
if that had been Jamal or Leroy, they would have called the police in. Not have remember the little five year old kindergartner. They called the police because she was having a temper tantrum, Mm. and they handcuffed the child. I remember that one. Yep. Yep. Yeah, no, they, they wouldn't have wasted their time with the parents. They just were straight called the police. And he would have been taken out in handcuffs. That's what I mean about the, I just, because I hear that excuse all the time where white people get absolved uh, for ignorance. And it's just every time where they're ignorant, they're not aware, blind eye, they got lots of incredible metaphors. And just now you're talking about your child. Like even even for the other uh, situations and the other contexts where ignorance is used, I don't believe it then. But this one. So now you're telling me that you're ignorant about your child. <laughs> Eric Harrison, Dylan Klebold. Dylan Klebold is nicknamed Vodka. You're his mother. You don't know your child's name is Vodka for a year? <sighs> You're putting a lot on me, man. You're putting a lot on me, man. And, and even if you are that ignorant about your child and they go out and do this, yep, you should be criminally culpable. And I say that if I was a parent who was that lazy, put that one in quotes too, and I didn't know that about my child, yep. That is horrible parenting, and that's the result, if that's the case. But I just don't believe that. That just doesn't even, nobody ever calls the house and, is vodka there? Nobody? <laughs> like, ever once like vodka? Well, mm-hmm. yeah, they, they they probably called and asked for his, by his actual name. But, but I remember when cell phones first came out and when kids first started getting cell phones. And I remember, um... It was a teenage girl in Washington, D.C., and she was killed. And her parents were trying to go through the cell phone to try to identify her friends. And my kids were younger then. I'm thinking, huh, mother doesn't know her child's friends. Oh, because what cell phones did, kids are no longer calling the house. Answer the phone and you actually know the name. They're just calling the cell phone directly. So you can see who I was talking to. The numbers. So it, it is harder now, but, you know, there, there weren't a lot of cell phones in 1999. Kids were still calling the house. That is a good point. Spoken as a mom, I will add, Dr. Flowers, spoken as a mother. Uh, but that is a good point that the children, they would probably use the name on the phone. Although I do think, because I know back in the, I would have a slip from time to time. And like, what did you say? Sorry, Jamal. Sorry. Sorry, Jamal. Uh, or what I just, yeah. But at any rate, um, yeah, the cell phones do add a different wrinkle because they are not calling. In fact, that'll be my push. I, that was my understanding, but I might be wrong. You would know better than I. I'm thinking that Columbine helped usher in the era that made it permissible to children for children to have, maybe even encouraged for children to have cell phones in case of incidents like this to even have them in the schools. Because I remember there was a time when you children could not have cell phones in school, especially like K through 12, but that is not the case anymore. Was this part of what changed those rules or am I not remembering it? Well, between Columbine and then two years later, 9-11, 
um, and, and then all of a sudden, and, and one of the things was, remember, um, calls weren't going out because the phone lines were so jammed. But tech, you could get a text message out. And a lot of parents got their kids' cell phones after 9-11. So, you know, these incidents like this do make parents try to think, oh, I, I need my child to be able to reach me if, if something's happening. And, and we see the use of cell phones in these shootings with, with children, even in schools where technically they're not supposed to have the phone. The kid has the phone, and, and they're sending their parents what, in some cases, was their last message. Or in Uvalde, it's the calls from the kids that show that the police were lying when they said, they didn't know it was an active shooter incident. They thought it was a hostage taking. Because they've got the record of when these calls came in. Mm. One year ago, literally this week uh, in Texas, and even the Uvalde shooting, that fits the exact pattern you talked about in the book, elementary school it's going to be more fatalities lower number of injuries and unfortunately so for that situation i think 19 uh students uh who died and then two faculty members uh in that shooting and then the perpetrators for the high school shootings tend to be older perpetrators for the elementary schools uh tend to be older think younger for the high school and then older for the elementary school think that What's the case here as well? If it most of the parameters and even the location, I guess Texas would be the south. So I guess these shootings are most likely to happen in was the west, Midwest regions were most most likely, and then the south was I think close third, if my memory is accurate. Is that correct? Yeah. So interestingly, the west and the Midwest had the largest number of shootings, but they had the lowest fatalities. One of the reasons, the, the biggest difference was the age of the shooter. The typical age in the West and Midwest were like 14, 15. And so sometimes nobody, I mean, they shot and had injuries, but no one was killed. But when you look at the South, those shooters were older. They were 17, 18, 19. And they just killed a lot of people. Older shooters in both Nashville and uh, Uvalde. These are two of the more recent uh, incidents. But I I think both of those would be south, Texas, Tennessee, both in the south per year. Yep. Yep, for the regions. You know, the south South seems to be the new epicenter for school-based mass shootings now. Hmm. Do you have a thought on why that why that is this location? We're talking roughly like tech. If you want to think like going west to Texas and then maybe as high as is the cutoff point around Tennessee, Virginia. Is that around the cutoff area for south? Yeah, but mainly we would be I mean, we really be looking at Texas, you know, Tennessee, Florida. Um, Yeah, I mean, south, I think, cuts off. Well, actually, you know. Washington D.C. is south of the Mason-Dixon line, mm-hmm. but <laughs> but um, yeah, generally the the traditional South, and part of it is 
they just have a strong gun culture in the South. And no matter what happens, they keep letting people have assault rifles. And in fact, um, in some states, they're trying to um, authorize, you know, concealed carry without a permit. Wow. Wow. That's, wow. 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 White people. Do you, do you think any of this could be connected? I'm sorry for the phone. Do you think any of this could be connected? This wide-ranging permissiveness uh, with firearms, or even encouraging firearms after some of these shootings. Do you think any of this could be connected to what they have called the Browning of America? Even Dr. Welsing's theory that the population of people classified as white might be in jeopardy. Do you think that might be in any way connected to some of these gun laws? Well, it, it is definitely connected because every time the politicians talk about why they need these laws, they talk about people being able to defend themselves in their homes. Only then it moves to being able to defend yourself on public space. So, yeah, you're def- the who you're defending yourself from is a black or brown person. Mm-hmm. I was going to say Leroy, but you already mentioned his name, Ralph Yarl. That's who you're defending <laughs> yourself from. I'm just coming to pick up my brother. You're a looter. Pow. That's what a lot of this ends up being, it looks like. Ralph Yarl. The person who dialed in, uh, Lauren, did you have a question for Dr. Angeline Spalding Flowers? Uh, you should be with us, Lauren. Yes, sir. Um, Dr. Flowers, thank you for coming on the program. Earlier, oh, you, you said with white. <laughs> okay, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, but Earlier, you said with white mass shooters, they have far-right ideologies, and you don't really see that with black people. What do you mean when you say far-right ideology? Um, Well, I said many of them have far-right ideology. So we're talking about white supremacists, neo-Nazis, you know, a new world order where we get rid of all the people of color, those those types of attitudes. And by definition, you don't see a lot of black people with those attitudes. Now, there are going to be some, but not a lot. Okay, I mean, it's actually kind of amazing the number of those shooters who you know, had neo-Nazi symbols and memes. And we see this with non-school-based mass shooters as well. Did that answer your question? Yes, ma'am, I think so. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Okay. Groovy. Much obliged, Lauren. Let's see. The Z's mom, parent, working hard. Did you have a question for Dr. Flowers, Z's mom? 
can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Okay, hi. Uh, greetings, Dr. Flowers. Greetings, um, Gus. Uh, I had a question. My question was, um, how do you think the idea of, like, reaching celebratory status plays into Columbine and the school shootings that have occurred afterwards? Like, do these people have kind of grandiose ideas about themselves but have no kind of, like, skills or charm to put themselves into the celebrity status and they use mass shootings to gain status because it seems like, you know, the Columbine shooters were obsessed with Timothy McVeigh and wanted to, like, one-up him. And it seems like Adam Lanza had, like, a list of all the school shootings with, like, the amount of people that were killed. And do you think there's an idea of, like, it being almost like a sport and wanting to get the highest score? And also, so I, I wanted think, to ask, yeah. is your book going to be available in any libraries anytime soon? Thank you. Okay. So, um, actually, the, sh- the shooters seem to fall into three categories. The celebratory ones that you talked about, the ones who, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be famous, I'm going to be, I mean, Adam Lanza had this seven by four foot listing of, of shootings and nine port font on his computer, and he was planning to be at the top. So you have those people. Then you have what I'll just call the grievance shooters, who um, something is, you know, they, they feel victimized, um, or they want to get back at something. And, and then you also have the ones who really are trying to commit suicide. And that actually was the case with a lot of the younger ones, the 14, 15, 16-year-olds. They um, were, were trying to commit suicide. In terms of whether the book is going to be in any libraries, you know, that depends on libraries, you know, ordering it. I mean, what? I hope it would be available in libraries. <laughs> here, here. Uh, had, the book has been out since it's 2021. Is that correct? When it was published? Yes. Okay. Yes. Had, well, I don't know. The Rona, it seems like the whole pandemic would have disrupted being able to go out and do, I guess you could do Zoom and such. Have you been able to do a lot of, of Zoom or have you been able to get out? I guess now a little more freedom now. Have you been able to get out to do some uh, talks about all of this? Um, you know, when it came out, yeah, did a couple, two or three Zoom presentations. You're right. It, it came out in the middle of the pandemic. Um, the good thing about the pandemic, not that the pandemic is good, but there were no school-based mass shootings. Mm. Now, yes, it was because schools were closed. Um, but that also makes you think. But what is it about a school, about schools, that seems to almost be a triggering factor? We would, at one point, we were trying to figure out, well, so schools are closed. Are people who would have gone and committed a mass shooting at their school, are they going and doing, it hasn't been displaced somewhere else? And we didn't really see that. 
so it, it, it suggests that there actually is a need to look at schools more closely. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, our caller... Two nine seven nine two nine seven nine. Did you have a question for Doctor Flowers? You should be with us. Greetings, guests, and to the callers and to Doctor Flowers. Uh, my my question is part of a clarification of earlier, a two part question really. Uh, but Doctor Flowers, uh, do you believe white people, people classified as white? Are prepared to give up firearms and guns? You said, are they prepared to give up firearms and guns? Yes. So there are there are white people who think that people should not have assault weapons. All right. And there are white people who are very involved in the gun control movement. On the other hand, there are white people who have fallen prey to what has actually been a deliberate attempt on the part of politicians and gun manufacturers to convince people that they are in danger and they have to buy this assault weapon to keep themselves and their family safe. And no, that subset of people are not prepared to give them up. Thank you for that. And then the last part of my question. Uh, so I, I agree. I, I don't believe white people are prepared. So even that, um, I've heard you mention gun control, and I, I hear that word come up a lot, when, or phrase come up a lot when you know, these types of mass shootings happen. So I think you touched on a little bit before earlier, but what do you mean or so people caught, what do you mean when you say gun, gun control? What do I mean by gun control? Um, you know, gun control can range from something as basic as having age limits on what types of weapons people can buy or when they can buy it on restricting the availability of some weapons. It can include um, regulation of ammunition. So, for instance, some states have said, okay, we, we can't regulate assault weapons, but if we limit um, magazines to 10, 10 rounds, what that does is it reduces the carnage and gives people time to escape. People get killed when the shooter has these huge magazines and they can keep firing without having to reload. And, and if they have to stop and reload, that split second might mean life or death for somebody. So, you know, even regulating ammunition is a way of, of gun control. So really just in the broadest sense, it's about... Um, looking at who and under what circumstances and what weapons people should have.
Much obliged. 2979. Uh, our caller 0356. 0356, did you have a question for Dr. Flowers? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Thank you. I'm greeting Seth. Uh, greetings, Dr. Flowers. <clears throat> to the calls and listeners Hi. Um, as well. Hi, man. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing? Um, maintain. Thank you um, for your research um, in this important topic here. Um, I just have a couple questions for you. Um, just for clarification, um, what do you mean when you use the terms affluent or good areas? So uh, we're really talking about relative affluence, and we defined it in the book in terms of its relationship to the the median household income for the nation or for a particular state or locality. So you would be, your commu- the community would be considered relatively affluent if the median household income in that community was above the state minimum, median income or above the national median household income. Okay, thank you. Um, and then I guess the part two to that, um, if there are any affluent areas that are predominantly black or non-white, do they have a high rate of these um, terroristic shooters like white affluent areas would? Um, the, the shootings we looked at, the one there, there were a couple that occurred in urban areas. But those that occurred in urban areas did not have the level of fatalities that the ones that occurred in these other communities did. So the community, the communities that were the suburban or rural communities that had a low population density and were relatively affluent had higher fatality levels when compared to other communities. Now, you know, just to be clear, this is not talking about, because you mentioned terrorist attacks. Let's say someone decides to come into a black community, um, for instance, the shooter um, in the supermarket in Buffalo, all right, or the gunman in Texas, I mentioned in the book, who drove 600 miles just to get to a Walmart that had a lot of Hispanic people in it. Um, though Those are different. So, yeah. All right, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Just one last question. Um, Thank you for your time so much. Um, In your your research, have you seen any data suggesting that these attacks are done more by those people classified as white than non-white people? And I mean, thank you for your time and your um, answers. Thank you. So the school-based mass shootings that we looked at, we looked at 17 shootings that for a total of 18 perpetrators, three of them were non-white. One was a 53-year-old man, and 
he basically went to the school where his ex-wife worked and shot her and someone else. So that really looks like, you know, domestic violence incident. And then there were two cases involving um, two Native American youth. And, you know, you, Gus, you mentioned earlier in the program how, you know, I, I stressed in the book that we were using the census definitions and census titles. So Native American was the term that was used in the census. And so we were just trying to be consistent. And um, but interestingly enough, one of those Native American youth, um, Jeffrey Weiss, um, who actually was in the top, his incident was in the top six fatality injury incidents. He, um, when they looked through his his internet, he kind of had some neo-Nazi um, leanings which is not what you would expect to find. I don't know. It's pretty widespread. Um, I don't know. That's, I wish. Well, well, it is. But, you know, most people are not going to follow an ideology that says that they're subhuman. There are a lot of, there's billions of dollars of bleaching creams and uh, hair dyeing and such that happens like around the world. So it's just. Uh, okay, now hold on. You're talking to a woman here, so let's not talk about hair dyeing. <laughs> oh, well, the bleaching creams, <laughs> males and females do bleaching creams. I mean, that's that's not a gendered thing. you know. And even the hair, no. even with the hair. I was really thinking of Minister Malcolm X and conking. That was what came to mind first. And then oh, okay. we just talked about uh, we, Brazil. That's how we got to your book, Dr. Fowler. We read the book is called Black Males or Black Men in Brazilian Soccer. It should be called Negroes with Kinky Hair because the whole book is about in Brazil how black males because of racism they were not allowed to play and so you would have we would have non-white males with one white parent and they would have to shave all their hair conk straighten their hair all these things because if you got any kinky hair like up 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 get get out of here we don't want to get out of here that type of thing that's the immediate thing yeah hmm? and we see that worldwide i remember my mother talking about how when she was was younger um, there was a member, there was this woman, an American woman who had married a South African. Mm-hmm. And once a year she would come back to the States and she would go around to all the black churches in North Carolina and basically um, get them to donate straightening combs. Wow. And then take them back to South Africa because she told them, she said, if the women can straighten their hair, then they can get a better job. Because they can try to be not black and maybe be colored. <clears throat> but but part of that is the way that I mean, and 
you know, whiteness is the dominant standard of beauty. And so it's, it's really challenging raising black children to see themselves as, as beautiful when media gives you a different picture. You know, don't want to quote a streaming service, but representation matters. Absolutely. And all of that just, yes, absolutely. And again, spoken as an attempted mother, black parent, Dr. Fowler, I appreciate all that, but I can understand how Jeffrey Weiss would be searching. In fact, we heard that with Elliot Roger. That's almost a school shooting. That was 2014, if memory is uh, correct. But the same thing, we had all those racist views and despised black people and and he bleached his hair. He oh, that's in the in the in his manifesto. He talks about not failure of masculinity. He talks about not being accepted as white. He talks in great detail about wanting to bleach his hair blonde as a child. And they said he was too young at the uh, beautician salon. They said he was too young, so he just could get the frosted tips. And the children at school thought he was so cool and it was so great and he couldn't wait to uh, elegant Roger. Okay. Uh, Non-Clemson grad. Oh, non-Clemson dad now. And mommy C. Uh, Did you all have a question for Dr. Fowler? Yes. Hi. Uh, hi, greetings, Gus, and uh, thank you. Greetings to uh, the guests. Thank you so much for um, writing your book and then also for, you know, fielding questions with us. Well, th- thank you for listening. <laughs> oh, I didn't know. Did you have a question or you just wanted to get your thanks in? Maybe that was it. Not sure. Maybe the oh, she might be mommying too. Got new mommy, so she might be mommying um, uh. while she is mommying. Um, the I mentioned Brazil. I don't know if you paid attention, um, Brazil, but I said the same day as the shooting happened in Nashville, there was a school attack in Brazil. Uh, The Washington Post, they had a report. This is just at the end of April. American school shooters inspire teen killers abroad. Uh, I'm skipping down about midway through the report. In the past four years, Latin America's largest nation has suffered 17 school attacks. 26 people have been killed and dozens wounded. In the last eight months alone, the country has endured 11 assaults, alarming many Brazilians who now fear that the carnage is just beginning. Many of the perpetrators fit a profile Americans will recognize young disaffected white men and boys in the grip of online groups that worship the killers of school children they use the word worship some have adopted the iconography of hate groups based in the United States the skull masks of white supremacists Adam Waffen division swastikas and other hate symbols Several, including the boy in Eracruz, 
were inspired by the 1999 Columbine Massacre in Colorado. Had you seen all of this happening? Because they have now lots of reports talking about this comparison between the U.S. and Brazil of these school attacks. Have you had you seen all this? You know, I, I did see some of it, and um, part part of what's happening, and it actually is always a matter of it's a struggle for like news reporters or, or researchers is you have these young disaffected kids and they see, Oh wow, that person is famous, you know? And so it, it's almost like, well, when I, when I wrote the book initially, when I was, we were working on the first draft Initially, we did not use their names. We just used initials because it's, it was almost like we don't want to give these people any more publicity. Um, that didn't go over so well with the publisher. But, <laughs> but um, you know, it really is a question. How do you talk about this without giving them publicity? And so we're saying, you know, the, the terrible things they did, but, you know, some other young person what they see is, wow, everybody knows their name. I want everybody to know my name, too. And also, I don't think people realize the, the mental state that many of our young people are in today. Um, you know, they, they talked about how there were concerns when schools shut down that mental health of kids would be um, affected because they weren't in school to see the school counselors, the schools that had school counselors. Um, our, our children are troubled. This is not to say that they're severely mental ill, mentally ill, but many of them are troubled. You know, they have excessive exposure to social media. They're being radicalized online by things that, they don't understand but are very seductive that offer a simplified view of the world and give them a sense of belonging and and that they then think this is this is what I want to be I, this is what I want to do we got uh non-Clemson dad and Mama C back with us. Maybe Woke Baby is a little settled and will cooperate for a question. Are you back with us? Yes, yes. Our apologies. Um, We got unmuted. We had to restart everything. But we have three questions. The first one, um, the guest mentioned that she has three, or I'm sorry, two young grandchildren. When would you suggest parents introduce active shooter preparedness to young children? Well, well, I remember actually when my granddaughter was in kindergarten, my daughter mentioned that, oh, they had an active shooter drill at her school because the school sent a note home. And so I was curious because I wanted to know how the school approached it. But at the same time, I did not want to create a level of anxiety in her. And so... You know, I just asked her, you know, what they had done that day. And she was like, oh, well, we sat in the circle and we had to be quiet. And the teacher read us a story. 
thinking, okay, and I'm trying to figure out if she actually had any clue why that was happening. Um, you know, that's, that's hard to say. You know your child. I mean, the main thing is you just want your child, when the teacher says, do this, they need to do it. You know, so, and the schools, the schools do those drills. But I, I will say one of the things that I, I read this in the newspaper, not that anything good comes from active shooter drills, but um, the, the January 6th insurrection, and yes, that was an insurrection. That was not a peaceful protest. Um, and, you know, some of the Congress people and a lot of the staffers were trapped in their offices but they said it was really thanks to those young staffers in their 20s who basically came up. They, they, their schooling was all post-Columbine, and they grew up with active shooter drills. So they knew, turn out the lights, lock the doors, push furniture up against the door, be quiet. They knew what to do. Um, a lot of the older people might have figured it out but you know it, it was not second nature to them like it was to these young people now as a parent that's kind of just not the way you want your child to grow up but on the other hand this is the world we live in so you know just like when you hear the fire alarm go off you get up you walk out of school whatever the active shooter signal is and I know that's really not answering your question because you said how old should they be when you as a parent start talking to them as act, about active shooters? I, I think that basically you always want to talk to them about what went on in school. And the schools usually do will tell you if they've done an active shooter drill. So then you can ask them if they had any questions about it without trying to make them more anxious. Because the kids are stressed enough now as they as it is. This is true. This is true. Um, second question: Have you done any research on the latest security measures that schools have implemented to protect against active shooters and other domestic terrorist attacks? So, the security measures fall into a couple of categories, and they don't necessarily it's not clear how effective they are so after after santa fe and um parkland you had these companies that were promoting their um oh the 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 software that would detect people facial recognition software and so there was this big push to get schools to put in facial recognition software that would immediately identify if someone didn't belong in the school. There are a couple of problems with facial recognition software. One, it does not work well on people of color. So it, it misidentifies people. The other thing is in some instances, the software is linked to the local police department. And so you were having instances of police coming up there and basically taking kids out of school. And it was really more about, is this really necessary or is this to increase a company's bottom line? 
Then you have schools whose approach is basically to harden the exterior, to harden the perimeter of the school, to make it harder to get in. And if you're talking in elementary school, that might be effective because elementary school, the shooters all came from outside the school. But high schools, they were either current or former students, and by former students, I mean they were at that school and had been put out or something. But what that meant was that these are, these are people who, in most instances, belonged in the school in the first place. So they're not necessarily going to be screened out unless maybe you have metal detectors, which may or may not catch everything. But those are the approaches, um, facial recognition software and, and hardening perimeters. Some schools have actually increased internal security, and it becomes a question of the extent of armed security that parents are comfortable with in the schools. And, you know, for parents of, of color, this is really a tricky question for us, isn't it? You know, on, on the one hand, we, we want our children to be safe. But on the other hand, we're looking at those guns and we're thinking, are they going to see my kid as, um, you know, a criminal and, and shoot them? Okay, thank you so much. Final question. Yes, final question. So last year around, I think it was April... April of 2022, um, we had a school shooting at a middle school in this area in South Carolina, and um, it was it was very interesting. First and foremost, it was a non-black, um, I'm sorry, a non-white black child who shot another non-white black child um, and killed him. And you know, he brought a gun to school, and he ended up killing killing this other child because he was a victim of being bullied at school. Um, it was interesting after the fact, seeing all the families um, being interviewed, uh, as well as all the children who attended or staff members who attended. It was almost like some of the some of the students that attended that school, they wanted to get their 15 minutes of fame. Um, but anyway, so non-Clemson grad had a question. Um, as in this case, most of the time when non-white um, people are involved in some sort of shooting, they're, they're targeting a specific individual. But many times in a lot of these mass shootings, as you pointed out, um, they're very non-discriminate on who, who they shoot at or who they end up killing or injuring. Um, in your research, uh, are there any circumstances or cases where you found non-white people would commit non-discriminate shootings? Um, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, three of the shooters were non-white. One of them was targeted because he was going after his ex-wife, although he hit other people. One of them was indiscriminate, although he started with killing his grandfather and his grandfather's girlfriend. He lived with his grandfather. He took his grandfather's weapons. His grandfather was a tribal police officer. 
He then took the police car and drove that to the school. Um, the other non-white individual, it was he was trying to commit suicide. And he basically, that was targeted. He basically invited his friends and his cousins, who were his friends, to join him for lunch, you know, meet him at lunchtime. They all went to the same school. And he killed them before killing himself. And in his writings that they found afterwards, he basically said, it was a suicide note, and he said he um, basically wanted to take his friends with him. It was like, I want to die. I don't want to go by myself. So, actually, of those three, only one could be considered random. Incidentally, okay, thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. Incidentally, the Freiburg case, this is that once the anomaly, this is the case where the uncle was prosecuted because he was not supposed to have the or the father excuse me not the uncle the father was prosecuted right. because he was not supposed to have a firearm non-white person um, right the uh i wanted to make sure i got it before we let you enjoy the rest of your sunday evening i saw your earlier report emergency management and vulnerable populations and just you had mentioned the the white nationalism previously we have been paying attention to i have the many many attacks on the power stations and electrical grids throughout the country and how even many of these attacks uh, have been suspected alleged that white supremacists might be trying to do this to cause disruptions type of thing that's talked about in the turner diaries uh just given your uh reporting on this uh have you seen these power grid attacks uh does that in any way relate to your research yeah i have seen those power grid attacks and um some of them actually have been traced to extremist groups it's not clear was it attack that they really thought would be successful at the time or were they basically was it a trial a dry run were they testing, you know, capabilities? Um, but it's worrisome because the reality is that our electrical grid is vulnerable. You know, it's, it's, it's the power stations, but then it's all the transmission lines that, that go all over the country. And everything, think about what happens when... You know, where I live in Washington, we have overhead power lines. So that when a storm, a tree branch come down and you've got no electricity. So that's no cell phone, no television, no laptop. If you have an electric stove, that's no stove. Now, imagine if that goes on for days or weeks. Because what some of these extremist groups want to do is, and they will tell you, they want to... um hasten the collapse of the country, they want to start a race war, all of those things. So it, it is very worrisome. 
in the Turner Diaries. Uh, that's another book right up there with the Anarchist Cookbook. I don't see that one on the banned book list either. And it talks about that. And Timothy McVeigh was reading the Turner Diaries, which also talks about blowing up a federal building, which he did carry out. I think Dr. Fowler, Flower, excuse me, did tell us. Columbine was supposed to be on April 19, an homage to McVeigh. They were going to top him like they were keeping score in terms of body count, but just were late getting their hands on ammunition and got pushed back one day, April 20. Retired firefighter, did you want to get our last question in for Dr. Flowers, retired firefighter in Florida? That's one of those regions down in uh, the Florida area that's considered the South parkland shooting and the rest of it those the 13 and 14 year old and the sound clip that we started with 13 and 14 year old white boys buddies they said plotting to get firearms on the black market emulate columbine retired firefighter in florida yes sir greetings everyone greetings to the guests i just wanted the guests to uh give a brief comment on a thought of mine uh, what's worrisome, worrisome for parents, uh, is, uh, that professionals, uh, strongly advise that you drop your child off to school or put them on the bus, that sort of thing for the, for that eight hours or so. And with all of this that we're talking about that's going on, that's the worrisome part of, uh, of being a parent to during the quote-unquote school hours. Did that sound correct, ma'am? Um, yes, that's true. And I think for a parent, it's worrisome anytime your child is outside of your control somewhere else and you're not there. And you, you're trusting other people to not only treat your child well, but keep them safe. Right. Mo most other places... Uh, you can at least show up like sporting events, that sort of thing. My last question, church and things like that. Uh, my last question is, do you think that most of the, the shootings, I, I don't know if it, it would be identified as mass shootings, that non-white people who are classified as black uh, 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 commit uh, are in sport, at, at sporting events? that are hosted by Little League, quote-unquote, or the high school level? So, particularly in, say, urban areas, um, you're talking about, okay, so first of all, let's back up. One of the things that makes, that's really disingenuous is this whole notion of telling white people you need weapons to protect yourself from black people. Because most Crime is intraracial, meaning that black people commit crimes against black people and white people commit crimes against white people. You don't usually see it being interracial. And so, um, you know, shootings, when you have the problem with the availability of guns is adolescence, you know, the brain, the prefrontal cortex of the brain apparently doesn't fully develop until you're like 25. 
And so adolescents, I read this, the brain is in its most rapid state of development since toddlerhood. And we all remember what our children were like as toddlers. So adolescents are like that, only they're bigger. And so um, you have that lack of impulse control, the easy irritability, and you combine that with having access to weapons. And so, yes, you were talking about, it's not that it's taking place at a sporting event because, it takes place at a sporting event, but it's taking place at a sporting event because that's where young people gather. And so it's taking place where they gather. Yeah. Do, do, you think, do you think that most of the shooters uh, in, in those events are not actually our uh, quote-unquote children? They actually are adults. Um, some are adults, a lot, you know, who, you know, 19, 20, 21, who happen to be at the event. Some of them are adolescents. And a lot of times it, it grows out of an argument between people. You right. Know? Now, I'm not talking about, you know, when we start talking about targeted gang hits, but just altercations, which, you know, in a different era, maybe somebody would have gotten stabbed as opposed to getting shot. Right. Yes, ma'am. Well, I thank you for coming on. You uh, have a large wealth of information, uh, and I am grateful for listening to the program to hear you uh, share that information with us. Thank you. Thank you. Oh. Much obliged. Uh, the book we have been chatting it up about this here evening. Uh, folks want to go check. In fact, we talked about this one before uh, where you can, if you want to go to your library and request a book, something you would like to read, summer reading. Now, this isn't, you know, it's not exactly Harry Potter, but important information, especially if we have parents out there, part of the intended audience, she told us. 20 years of school-based mass shootings in the United States, Columbine to Santa Fe. Co-authors Katina Lane Pixley, our guest for this evening's broadcast, Dr. Angeline Spalding Flowers. Uh, learned so much reading your book really helped inform we're about at the halfway point in our Columbine study so this has greatly supplemented our book study we will be eagerly is it going to be like a paper on your white nationalism project or is this a book a talk what is is this something to look forward to um <laughs> well hopefully something to look forward to but uh no the final the final iteration hasn't been decided yet Okay. It's, it's still a work in progress. Understood. Okay. Okay. So we will we will send great create energy, great create ener creative energy. There we go. Creative energy to you to uh, give us something else brilliant. We'll chew on this one in the meantime. Twenty years of school-based mass shootings in the United States. 
learned so much. Thank you for sharing a bit of your it's holiday weekend, not just Sunday evening, but holiday weekend. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your time and insight with us. Learned a ton. Thank you, Dr. Flowers. Thank you. Take care. For sure. You too. The cows, Dr. Angeline Spalding Flowers. Uh, the cows. Uh, and got here via the book, Catherine Massey Book Club. That is how we got here, studying Columbine. This would be an example right here. I was so embarrassed that I really had not bowling for Columbine. That's it. Like I really did not have another source of knowledge, information about what happened with those events. That was that. And even that film does not emphasize this was a failed bombing. Looking up to Timothy McVeigh was one of the callers who asked that question about uh, we're going to outdo them. We're looking at this like a, a ball game or something. We are going to kill more people than McVeigh did with our bombing. And then we're going to shoot people, students, our classmates, as they run out of the school. That's what this was supposed to be. And I don't, I didn't think of it in that manner. I don't think most people do. I think that probably is another component of white supremacy racism. Like, wait a minute. We are worshiping. Not they wanted to go and shoot up the school. They wanted to bomb the school. This was, we're thinking we're going to kill like 500 of our classmates and teachers. That was the plan. That's who, with the word that you worship. Right. Yeah, definitely. I even said, they, uh, in the book we're reading, Dave Cullen's Columbine, he said, uh, Sue Klebold's, she's the mother of Dylan Klebold, that they, uh, they had a private service uh, for their child. They wanted to make sure that they didn't have uh, a gravesite, a public like gravesite or anything, because they felt that people would come and desecrate the corpse. And I said, man, from what? One, pause for Emmett Till, because I have heard and I do know about cases where that is done. Emmett Till's corpse, they do that all the time. They've done that for decades. From what I've studied of this, I don't think that would have happened at all. If anything, it would have become a shrine. People already make pilgrimage pilgrimages to uh, Colorado and Columbine specifically to go to the school, to go to the memorial. They just two days ago, I just posted it. They had the term that Dr. Fowler used, Dr. Flower used. They had a far right extremist go to the Columbine Memorial within the last two days with an assault rifle live streaming. People were commenting while he was there, like, what are you doing? With are you at the Columbine like memorial? They called the police and all of that, but that's about the size of what I think. I do not think people would be coming to, you know, deface the gravesite and call him names. I think it would be a spot of worship and oh, we miss you, Dylan. And, oh, and here's some. Uh, they, I think they had beanie babies at his funeral. I think they would probably be coming and leave those. It would, if anything, all of those white people who say that they're Columbiners, it would be mandatory. You gotta go to the gravesite gotta go take get some selfies so I can put that on social media that I was at the the graveside and that's another I could not imagine this being the case if it had been Leroy Ralph Yarl 
No, no. It would not have been. But the, the way that they're doing the, that, that same type of reference you see for them, mm. you, you see it also with all of those terrorists and insurrectionists who were arrested in connection with January the 6th. Uh, All of a sudden, these are not terrorists. These are patriots. Martyrs. So, you know, that's right. Mm, mm, that's, that's, I mean, even we got uh, insurrectionists uh, and traitors uh, on one hand, and then they're terrorists. They're bombing the school. Timothy McVeigh is a terrorist. That's who they were emulating. They were trying to one-up him, as the caller said. These are terrorists, and they got comic books and many, many movies uh, about them. And people worship. That's the word they used was worship. Uh, did, I missed it. Any right. of the fo- folks have a question they want to make sure they get into Dr. Uh, Flower before we let her enjoy the rest of her Sunday Eve holiday weekend, much less. Did we miss anybody? Everybody got there. <laughs> Uh, question in. I mean, folks are supposed to be grilling and doing hot dogs and fireworks and all that good stuff. I had a question. One more. Z's um, mom, attentive I was just parent. Curious. I was just curious. Um, what would, in your opinion, how do you think the media like role in representing these mass shooters? and giving them this kind of like celebrity status. Do you think that they have a significant role? And if so, what should they do to, I guess, so I, not give them I, that I, status? You know, it's, it's hard because there's a line that the media walks between giving people information that we want to have and not glorifying these activities but also keeping in mind that the mainstream media is profit-driven. You know, they they sell advertisements, which means they have to have things on there that um, people are going to pay attention to. And every time someone is is shot, particularly in schools, in mass shootings, we, we turn into the news. I mean, we watch it you know, for hours and listen to people talk about thoughts and prayers. And um, you could argue that if the media did not report it, then maybe people would not know about it and wouldn't glorify these people. Except now you don't need the media to report it because it can be uploaded on the Internet. I mentioned earlier that the way some people have tried to do it is is not mention the name very much. So the person isn't getting, doesn't see themselves as being glorified. But, um, you know, it's a challenge that, you know, a question that they really just haven't figured out yet. The caller at 2979, did you have another question you wanted to get in for Dr. Flowers? Yes. Uh, my my question is going kind of going back to, you know, sharing information with children. I am not a parent, but I wanted to know from your research, are there any other, I guess, identifying markers 
to share with other non-whites, especially uh, children, about what they should look out for when it comes to some of these terrorist, white terrorist attacks. Uh, it seems right now that the only one's a uh, white male, but based on your research, do you have any other... The, those are the... Markers? Yeah, those are predominantly white males. But the other things that they found is that um, a lot of times the students actually... It's called, the term they use is called leakage. So they leak information um, to other students. Sometimes they just say, I'm going to shoot up the school. Other times they might do something like start giving away all their possessions, which people also do when they, they're contemplating suicide. Um, sometimes, and, and keep in mind that a lot of these involve elaborate planning, They've shown the plans to somebody. In a couple of these instances, other kids knew, um, and police actually tried to charge the other kids who knew. In one instance, a girl knew, and she was on her way to tell the principal um, when they started shooting. So it, it's important that kids feel comfortable, but that they understand that if they see something like this, that they need to tell it to an adult. Thank you. That was very You're welcome. Lots of that throughout many of the cases right there. Uh, even Columbine, there was enough of that they had some of their friends. Robin Anderson did the straw gun uh, purchase for them, uh, and it been buying the, right. the. They had a whole website where they had talked about killing all the. I mean, it doesn't. They had a whole website. That whole website. They were talking about killing uh, their friends and what have you. And this was known. That that's what we went back for. They had a search warrant. If the police had done their job, there was enough leakage. Columbine would have been stopped. Uh, if. Even as she said, an investigation. Why was there no follow-up on this search warrant? And all the let's just make sure we cover our bases here. Like leak, such a big one, such an important one. Tell they call it snitching. Tell safety first. Tell. Uh, anybody else? Right. Listen, buddy. Can I hear? Yes, sir. Yeah. You could speak up a little bit. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, thank you for your time. Um, this has been a um. Did we lose that questioner? Oh, we have. Is he? Let's see. Oh, he might have. Hello? Okay, we can hear you. Yes, sir. We did drop Hi. out. Hello? Okay. Okay. Yes, sir. Just restart with yeah, your okay. question, sir. Some of the Bluetooth headphones. Um, my question was, have you noticed um, a correlation between um, video games and an uprise in these shooters? Uh, my question is pertaining because I've noticed um, within the book on the book club, it talked about how um, these two youth 
were very proficient in creating video game mods and they were very into video games. Um, um, the whole idea of a first person shooter, that's what I'm trying to explain here, um, is the idea of a first person shooter game, can that be correlated to these acts of violence within schools? Thank you for your time. Uh, no. I mean, I know that um, that's one of the, it's got to be the video games. Okay, there are a lot of bad video games out there. I, I will be the first person to say that. Um, it's not the video game. And now, having said that, there are people who are using video games. There are actually terrorists who are using video games. So there's some virtual world games where terrorists go in and practice and communicate. Um, there was another game that, okay, I was playing it myself, and <laughs> it was not a first-person shooter. I've always been bad at those. But I remember a week after the insurrection, I was in there and discovered a total replica, perfect replica of the Capitol, including the location of each of the offices of the Congress people. And it was, um, this is a game where everything is typically looks like little Legos and look kind of blocky. Oh, no, no, no. This was, this was good. It disappeared a couple of weeks later. And I always wondered about that. Because one of the things that law enforcement spoke about was they knew where to go. And the offices that were in the Capitol building were not public offices. And they were wondering how they knew where to go. So you, you do have instances where video games are being used by terrorists as training tools. Um, it's another issue. I mean, I think there may be some research that some people, if they play video games too much, just like anything too much isn't good, can become desensitized to violence. But thus also usually individuals where there's a lot of other things going on in their life. In other words, it's not just the video game, but maybe they also are looking at conspiracy and um, racist right-wing websites and propaganda. And then coupled with the video games. Now, yes, you can practice. Um, one of the things police noticed about Adam Lanza when he went into Sandy Hook was that basically he every time he walked into a classroom, he reloaded whether he had emptied the clip or not. And they said it was like um, he was playing a video game. But people who engage in that type of activity because they played video games and solely because they played video games are probably almost non-existent. It's, it's something else going on. And maybe the excessive video gameplay is a symptom or a sign rather than a cause. Did, did that answer your question? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. 
Awesome. The video games definitely pops up in Columbine. I think Doom and uh, Duke Nukem, uh, which are kind of first-person white role-player games. You go out and shoot and kill and do all that. Uh, they even they even made a video game out of uh, the Columbine Massacre, uh, which I did not know until we started researching uh, all of this. And... Now, that I would not permit my child to play. Mm. <laughs> they could not play a video game about the Columbine Massacre. Um <laughs> Limits. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Uh, did we got everybody's question? Do we miss anyone? One more. Retired firefighter, sir. Metal, de- metal detectors metal. As, as a prevention. Well, what are your comments on it, ma'am? So you, you find metal detectors in urban schools and they've been in urban schools for a while um technology being what it is at some point you know they'll have those plastic guns which may slip through the metal detectors one of the the significance at the high school in terms of characteristics of high school shooters Remember, I mentioned earlier that they were either current or former students, is that they know the school. They know where you can get in without going through the metal detector. Remember, at Uvalde, they came in through a back door that may have been left ajar. So... I mean, even metal detectors are not necessarily at all the entrances. Sometimes they keep the others closed or they're exit-only doors. But if you have somebody standing by that door to open it like they're going out, you can slide in. Of course, it could be that metal detectors are the reason why we don't find a lot of shootings inside urban schools. But I do know some parents are uncomfortable with the idea of metal detectors. But most kids in urban schools don't think anything about them. desensitized oh I was going to just say I think you had told us before I was going to make sure I heard it even with this urban school so called where they have more non-white students even there uh, it's I'm not aware of tons of cases where they pull the fire alarm to get people to run out and and, and indiscriminately shoot people once they run out of the school so they don't do that either do they exactly right that's what I thought I heard they don't, you know, which in which case the metal detector doesn't do any good. But that also is a function of the fact that the Parkland shooter, Nicholas Cruz, that he had gone to that school. So he knew that school. He knew where the fire alarms were. Also a big trend. You know, someone coming into the school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You said someone coming in 
Yeah, some a stranger who didn't know the school would not have had that level of knowledge. Major point that you make in the book that most of these shootings, we're not talking about strangers. Frequently, it's people who they have some sort of connection to the school, especially once you get to the high school shootings. Most of the time, they are students at that high school, so they know the layout and the Eric Harris still in Cleveland. They had planned a year in advance. They knew where the cameras were and all that. Even those 13 and 14 year old in Florida, same thing. And they had planned well in advance and knew where the cameras were and all that. And when the most children are in lunch and all the rest of it. So it's a little different if the threat is already behind the lines trying to fortify and all the rest. Someone incidentally did uh, email me during the live broadcast there is this was in the Washington Post right where you are the active shooter video game horrified Parkland parents it was pulled before release uh, said or just the first couple lines it says the gunman armed with an AK-47 is in a second story window of a school prepared to make a final bloody stand SWAT officers rush into an entrance below Two are struck by gunfire and are instantly killed as fleeing civilians prepare to breach a door. The gunman turns his rifle toward them and shoots one in the back. A digital counter keeps a helpful tally. Civilians killed one. Cops killed two. I'll stop there, but this was just uh, in the Washington Post not too long ago in terms of video games or having a real life school mass shooting turned into a video game. Did you, did you know about this Parkland video game as well? Active shooters, what it's called? No, I didn't. Um, I, I will say not for commercial use, but, um, there is, there's some utility for that type of, Let's not call it a game. Let's call it a simulation for training purposes. And actually not just for law enforcement, but for school officials to actually be able to see a situation as it unfolds and, okay, what type of response should we take here or what could have been done differently? That we, we really have to start. We have to start thinking about these things differently, um, because it is very difficult to deter a determined perpetrator. All right. So, you know, the question becomes: How how can you mitigate it? If you can't identify them in advance, what steps can you take to? make people safer or to increase their chances of survival. We, we can't tell kids if there's a fire alarm, don't run out of the school because if there's a fire alarm, we want them to leave. But a school shooter knows that. This actually takes it back to the weapons. But I agree, that's a bad game. Mm, now we got two offspring cannot play. 
gun culture as well. Make sure we get that in too. <laughs> uh, but again, the book plug for the book, again, go to your library and see if you can uh, get them to get it in stock. You can read it for the summer uh, and what have you share it with folks. 20 years of school based mass shootings in the U.S. Uh, lots of details uh, on Columbine and unfortunately uh, a number of the other uh, incidents now that have taken place uh, really a quarter century uh, at this point. Uh, but wow, learned so much. She indulged us with uh, her time this evening. Mother, scholar, uh, Dr. Angel Lynn Spalding Flowers, uh, thank you so much for hanging out with us this Sunday for Listeners will be here for the book club at minimum on Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, just check the social media and what have you uh, for programs that will be copping up between now and Thursday. So especially for this weekend, sobriety would be best. They're going to have sobriety checkpoints and all that. Be safe if you are out and about. Whew. Context of white supremacy. Signing out. Thanks all. For tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Your problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.